Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 153 being recorded on Sunday, November 18th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Tonight, we are sitting here on the cusp of Thanksgiving, which is the official kickoff of Holiday 18. Uh, we're going to have some great guests on as we get into the thick of that. But we thought we'd take this kind of opportunity here before uh, everything hits to go over some industry news. And we uh, had some listeners that were really dying to ask some questions. So we have some listener questions. And we have hopefully, uh, if our sound engineer is doing his job, we should have this out uh, before you do your uh, travel for Thanksgiving. So hopefully this gives you something to um, get the folks in the car asleep so that you can think about some e-commerce and get really super hungry as you ride to that great turkey dinner that you're going to enjoy. Oh, God, that's a lot of pressure you just put on the audio engineer. Thanks a lot, Scott. Well, we have a we have a big team, and I'm confident they can uh, they can get it done. Awesome! <laughs> Before we dig into news and listener questions, Jason, you uh, were at something to deal with a bonfire. So tell me about this big bonfire you went to. Yeah, sadly, I did not get to light anything on fire. Um, loyal listeners will have heard last week's show where we talked a little bit about some joint research that my employer Publicis did with salesforce.com um and so we did this this big study called the shopper first study and uh you can listen to episode 152 if you want to learn more about the study uh but one of the things we've we've done uh is leverage pieces of that study in various um social events around the country so one of these uh we called the retail retail bonfire was in manhattan a couple weeks ago um we had uh three or four hundred clients in uh to the Dream Hotel, put on a cool event, um, and uh, shared some of the research. But I also got to uh, talk a little bit about one of my favorite topics, which is personalization. Um, and I, I got to share this story that I enjoy sharing uh, that I call hashtag United You Don't Know Me. Um, and it's essentially this this tragic story about how I'm United's best customer and I'm in their secret customer affinity program and I travel millions of miles with them and I, I uh, do all my spending with a, a very expensive United credit card. And so in premise, they should know everything about me and they should have tons of data to uh, dramatically reduce friction and make my, my experiences with them easy. And there's just numerous touch points I have with them every day where they miss that opportunity. And so uh, that I use that story uh, to sort of underscore the point that at the moment in the industry, we're talking an awful lot about personalization, but in reality, nobody's doing a very good job yet. And we, we have all the, the data and insight to treat customers much better than we in fact actually are. And so that's kind of the, premise of my my talk which uh, seemed like it was well received i got some good feedback at the retail bonfire 
Yeah, there was a video posted and uh, I couldn't hear what you were saying because it was from the audience there. And, uh, but there was a lot of laughter. I thought you were doing, uh, you, were, you were quitting this whole e-commerce retail gig and doing stand-up. Uh, so you may have busted me. I'm a little overexposed. I flew straight from the retail bonfire to uh, the Home Improvement E-Retail Summit in Chicago, which was a show for uh, the home improvement industry uh, talking about digital disruption. And so I think the video you're referring to was actually a little bit of my my sort of omni-channel presentation at the retail bonfire. And, and I, you know, I always try to put some jokes in there and occasionally uh, one of them lands. Man, the... I don't know what you're saying, but those people were very—they were rolling in the aisles. I got super lucky that they accidentally recorded the one one segment where where they thought I was funny, and they didn't record what I said. So you will never know that they just uh, don't have a very good sense of humor. <laughs> I was guessing that maybe you had like you were like the nine p.m. and they had gone to dinner and had like four or five drinks or something. Yeah. Well that, uh, for folks that are interested in having me speak at your event, you should know, I do have a two drink minimum. So, um, I only accept events where people are likely in that state already. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I've been traveling a lot since grocery shop doing a bunch of fun events and, uh, I've been trying to keep up on stuff, but I feel like every time I open my newsfeed, all I see is a big giant picture of Scott Wingo, uh, doing something with Spiffy. And I think there was some, uh, particularly cool news this week, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and it's kind of, uh, you know, you would think that my uh, car washing world would not intersect with our digital world that much, but the increasingly it is. Uh, and so one of the things we've been working on at Spiffy for a long time is uh, a fair number of manufacturers have connected car initiatives. Uh, uh, long-time listeners will know I'm a big Tesla enthusiast, so I've been in the connected car world since 2013. Um, and what, what connected cars essentially is your vehicle has a 3G, a 4G, or an LTE connection um, that, that essentially connects your car to the cloud. And then usually the uh, manufacturer will give you an app and it'll let you do a lot of cool stuff. So, for example, with the Tesla app, you can lock and unlock the car. You can actually put it in a valet mode. You can, you can now actually... Um, uh, it, it has a, a mode where it will it will come to you, um, so that's pretty cool, kind of Tony Stark mode. Uh, and then, so various other manufacturers have other features. Uh, in addition to the app having a connected car uh, it, it, in the vehicle, you typically will have Wi-Fi, um, and then you can have just like over-the-air updates. You can have better maps. So there's a lot of really great reasons to do this from a consumer behavior perspective. Uh, so 2015, people started introducing it. And it was kind of spotty because a lot of them would charge you extra. A lot of consumers didn't sign up for it. But then in the last two or three years, OEMs are kind of including it uh, in the the first three to five uh, years of the vehicle uh, ownership. So where that ties in with our world at Spiffy is we're doing on-demand car care, car washing, oil changes, those kinds of things. And we're, you know, having watched Amazon for 20 years, um, you know, I think the thing they get right as an organization is being really obsessed with, with customers. So we um, spend a lot of time thinking, how can we make that customer experience better? And one of the painful things uh, that drives us crazy is we have to get our customers keys. Uh, and that can be kind of an arduous process. So this allows us for those customers that do have connected cars, they can give us permission. And then the day of the service, we can come in and our technician can lock and unlock the car and get the keys and do our service without having them involved. Uh, And they have total transparency and permission and control over that. So 
that was really well received. We got a lot of good press, and thanks for bringing it up. It's it's uh, it's it's fun to see how these things overlap. Yeah, it's that's, that's kind of cool. cool. It, it reminds me a lot of sort of it's the car wash equivalent of the Hoyt Grail of uh, Amazon or Walmart delivering the groceries uh, right to my refrigerator. Yeah, Amazon does have a program. Um, so within Amazon Key, there's two flavors to Key. There's that home one where they can um, you can grant them permission with a Wi-Fi lock uh, to come in or out, uh, and then you have the camera to watch the delivery person. Um, then they also have a car delivery system within Key, uh, and they're using a lot of the same technology that we are in the connected car to do that. Nice. Um, I will say, I know you you joke about there being a lot of overlap, but it's kind of annoying for me because I feel like. Uh, I'll go to visit a car client and I'll, you know, be talking about e-commerce and, uh, you know, I sort of feel like you've, you've moved on from e-commerce to car and then they're still all, yeah, we're sick of Jason. Can we meet Scott? It kind of hurts. (laughs) Funny. Cool. So it would not be the Jason and Scott show without a little bit of. Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. Cool. Well, the big Amazon news that that has happened since our last news podcast is they uh, they did make the final HQ two decision. Uh, the good news is it lined up with the rumors reported on. So this is kind of like old news in a way, but uh, or confirmed news, I guess we should say. So what Amazon did uh, is they they kind of did the proverbial, the Old Testament splitting of the baby. Um, and instead of announcing one winner, they decided to split it into two winners. So uh, New York and Virginia were the winners. So specifically New York City, uh, you know, somewhere around Queens called Long Island City, which is evidently not in Long Island. Maybe you're, you can explain this to listeners. I, I don't understand this particular thing. Uh, and then Crystal City, and they're actually... Uh, asking people to kind of create a new name. So there's a whole new name there uh, that they're going to kind of call where they're going to be um, something like national landing. So uh, that's interesting. And so there was a lot of controversy after the announcement. So first of all, a lot of people were upset. They split it uh, and they're kind of like, well, this isn't really another headquarters. It's just two things. Um you know, uh, uh, Dr. Galway was right. He had predicted this. Uh, and so he was vindicated in his whole thing about, you know, it's going to be near two of Jeff Bezos's houses and there's going to be for political influence and it's a sham. Um, a lot of people have observed that now Amazon has data from something like 240 cities and metro areas about, you know, uh, uh, all this data they had them put together for Amazon is now sitting somewhere in a database and uh, helps Amazon in a variety of different ways. You know, the next time they build a fulfillment center or a data center, they can kind of go and say, well, you know, for HQ2, you said this. Certainly you can give us a portion of whatever you promised. Um, and then uh, the other big one is now that it's public, the subsidies have been released uh, and it turns out when you add up uh, New York and Virginia, it's over $2 billion in subsidies. So this creates a lot of uh, consternation from citizens who are like, wow, why are we paying so much? Uh, and then companies that exist in these locations are like, okay, we've been here forever. When are we going to get our tax credits? Uh, and it's just really kind of, uh, it, it, you know, I, I probably read five articles a day, still kind of from the aftershocks of this. And it's been uh, a week, 10 days since it was announced. So I thought that was interesting. And then finally, Amazon did leave the door open for other cities. Um, and 
Um, you know, so that's going to be interesting to watch and see where they they plant more flags. What do you think about it all, Jason? Yeah, I'm a little over it. I, uh, my wife asked me today, and I she pointed out that I kind of snapped at her in the answer because <laughs> uh, I'm a little tired of talking about it. Uh, although, of course, I want to share my my humble POV with our listeners. Um, you know, again, so they're. Opening a new headquarters in uh, a suburb of New York, and they're going to have 25,000 employees. Google already has close to 25,000 employees in New York. And there was no year-long um, contest or, you know, this constant drumbeat of news. I, I feel like uh, Amazon set set things up by calling it HQ2 and having this kind of formal uh, contest. And uh, all of us uh, that follow the industry and, and the media – I feel like sort of overreacted and bought into it too much because it's in some ways it's, it's not a heck of a lot different than, than the way every other company behaves. I mean, all, all companies, you know, try to extort these uh, business development funds from cities when they move new infrastructure there. I mean, you know, Boeing threatened to move their headquarters from Seattle to Chicago. McDonald's is moving their headquarters. Like there are all these things that happen all the time. uh, And it's, it's kind of annoying that the Amazon one stayed in the news cycle for a year and then had this anticlimactic ending, right? So they they split it up between two cities. So it clearly isn't a co-equal headquarters. Like I'm sure the center of gravity for Amazon is going to stay squarely in Seattle. So people that like that are going to be happy. People that don't like Amazon's presence in Seattle are probably going to be disappointed. Uh they're going to hire a bunch of people in New York and compete with with Google and the agencies uh, for tech hires in New York. But that's not, I think, a game changer. Uh, you know, it's it's I feel like it's a little overhyped. I will tell you that Steve Carell was the host of Saturday Night Live this week and he played Jeff Bezos um, in the opening and he, he he had a bunch of funny lines, but one of them. Uh, he's like, we were excited to announce HQ2 last week, and everyone was really excited with our results, except for the people in one of the cities that we selected as HQ2 or any of the people that live in anywhere that is not HQ2. <laughs> Just pretty much everybody, yeah. Exactly. That, that was pretty funny and uh, summed it up pretty well. Uh, side note, anytime a city cut these economic development projects with employers, one controversial thing is like, how much input you gave the citizenry in this and what, you know, sort of check and balance process were followed. And obviously, like, uh, particularly in New York, um, Amazon negotiated for these things uh, and the, the governing politicians largely agreed to them without any public discourse. And so now that they're revealed, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, folks on city councils and uh, in various capacities that are sort of outraged and obviously the optics to Amazon probably look pretty bad because they're they're you know compared to many companies they're they're doing very economically well uh now these these um uh subsidies that they're getting are are publicly revealed there was no there was no sort of public comment period um and it looks a little shady that they promised this whole HQ2 thing and then they they split the baby and, you know, we all assume that the subsidies they got are not half of what was offered because they split the headquarters in half. They probably got most or all of the, the offered subsidies, even for the 
uh, the half the jobs that they promised. And as you kind of pointed out, they're, every single time they open a fulfillment center from now on, they're probably going to remind that municipality what kind of program was offered. And, and, you know, they'll try to get as much of that as they can. And I think they even now announced a big new facility in Nashville at the same time they announced these two headquarters. So uh, I'm not, I don't think they're behaving that much different than any other employer, but I feel like some of the overhyped PR may be sort of backfiring on them at the moment because there is a big backlash and it almost even feels like Amazon recognized that it had gone overboard. Cause I feel like they, they leaked the announcement on election day and that, like, I assume that was to try to kind of sneak it in in a, a busy news cycle. Yeah. Uh, so another interesting one that I was following this week, uh, is there's been kind of a, a fun arms race on what retailers would do for their, uh, free shipping programs for holiday. Um, so, uh, Target, uh, several weeks ago, announced that they would drop all minimum thresholds on their free shipping. So, you know, if you want to shop uh, from Black Friday through Christmas, at Target, no matter what you buy, what volume, you get free two-day shipping. Um, Walmart normally has free two-day shipping with a $35 threshold. So we're all curious to see if Walmart would respond to Target's offer. And Walmart did not respond. They they announced that they were going to keep their $35 threshold. And so at the time, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, Walmart didn't feel like they had to chase uh, Target in this particularly expensive to offer promotion um, over holidays. I thought that was kind of fascinating. And in a way, I, I, I sort of admired uh, Walmart's position there. Um, and then the totally unexpected thing happened. <laughs> Amazon came in and said, Oh, and by the way, we're offering free shipping with no threshold, whether you're a Prime member or not, for the holidays. Um, and so, in effect, matching Target's offer and undercutting Walmart. And while I have a feeling Walmart was comfortable not matching Target, uh, I suspect they, they did not anticipate that that uh, Amazon would have a significantly more generous shipping offer than they did. Yeah, I had some people tweet at me and they're like, well, why would anyone pay for Prime? And, you know, I think what those folks are missing is this is the Super Saver uh, equivalent, you know, program. Um, and it used to be you had a, a minimum cart that you'd have to get to get Super Saver, but it's still the Super Saver service level, which is a hard series of things to say. Um, but essentially, you know, that's kind of the slow boat and it's a four or five, six day kind of a shipping window, not a not a two day. So uh, Prime still is a thing. It makes sense uh, in my mind to pay for because now you're getting free two day shipping uh, for paying the subscription. So that's the difference and why why Prime and Super Saver can still coexist even when Super Saver is free. One thing I noticed that was interesting is there's been a lot of kind of friction between Apple and Amazon uh, over the years. Uh, uh, and then also Facebook, there's there's kind of a lot of drama going on with, with all these companies. But specifically between Apple and Amazon, uh, you know, there's been no love lost there. They, they've had uh, one example is Prime Video for the longest time wasn't available on Apple TV devices uh, you know, I don't think Apple was ever available on Amazon Fire devices. Uh, and then uh, they got that resolved. Uh, and then one of the ones that got resolved that was kind of interesting is is Apple. This was on CNET that Apple is going to really 
increase its uh, listings on Amazon with kind of putting the, the main product lines up there with iPhones, iPads, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, essentially Apple selling on Amazon. Uh, I thought the timing was interesting. It you know feels like if you're Apple, you want to do that for the holiday. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Wall Street agita that the new iPhones aren't selling at kind of the pace everyone thought they should be and suppliers are swimming in inventory. So so that was interesting, but, but I kind of felt you know what is the quid pro quo if if i'm if i'm amazon and i say all right i'll let you sell more of your stuff here you know obviously you're getting a cut of that um, but then you know it feels like there's something else thawing there and uh, one of the big friction points as a kindle reader uh, so i use my kindle app on my ipad uh, is you can't really buy from the kindle app you have to go to the Amazon website. You can't even buy through the Amazon app. You can't buy Kindle content. You have to go to the website, order it, and then download it. And what they're doing is they're getting around the you know the 20 to 30% take rate at the store level um, by not buy, selling right from the, the iTunes store. So I would love to see uh, you know that uh, as a, a big friction point that with the Amazon ecosystem, I'd love to see kind of hopefully as these guys get along better, I'd love to see that go away. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, you know, I assume one of the things that, that Apple is getting in the short run is that uh, by being on on the the platform formally, that they're going to get more uh, brand protection help and more policing with all the the counterfeit product. And because Apple is so popular, like you know, there's a lot of speculation that there's a ton of counterfeit product. And I'm I'm thinking mainly like chargers and cables and things like that. That that. Uh, uh, you know, the probably part of the quid pro quo of Apple being on there formally is uh, that they'll get more help with their brand protection. And so in some ways it felt not too dissimilar from a, like the deal Nike cut earlier, for example. Hmm. Um, but I will throw one thing out. Uh, I share your frustration. Um, I can browse for books on the Kindle app, but I can't buy them. I have to go to the website. And per your point, it's because when you buy something through an app, you pay a commission to the app store owner, right? And so Amazon doesn't want to pay Google and iTunes the big commission on those books, so they make you go to the web. Uh, there is now a terrific solution for this. Uh, Amazon should release a Kindle progressive web app. And and so that, that essentially like would be an a, a app functionality that you don't get from the the app store and therefore don't have to uh, pay a commission. And so they could basically have all the same offline capabilities that they have in their app. They could let you put an icon on there uh, on, on the, the home screen, um, let you read books offline and all those sorts of things. And they could uh, sell you books, uh, which uh, without having to pay uh, iTunes or Google play a commission. So regardless of whether this deal makes Apple and Amazon more friendly in that way, uh, I feel like Amazon needs to get off the dime and embrace PWAs. So then how do you, if, um, so I'm going to do a four dummies question. If they're not in the app store, which everyone's been trained as a way to get this stuff, how do you do discovery? Yeah. So that still is the, that is the problem with PWAs is they, uh, well, they have a pro and a con discovery. They're not discovered in the app store, uh, but they are much more discoverable in, uh, Google than apps are. Uh, and so I, I, if I were uh, Amazon, I would certainly still have my app in the app store for discovery. 
but I would uh, give them an alternative, which is this PWA version. So instead of throwing someone to the Amazon website to buy uh, the book and then having them come back to the app to read it, I would throw them to the PWA version of my site to both buy the book and read them going forward. Um, and it, uh, we'll see if the app stores get uh, cracked down on this. But at the moment, there's no restriction against having an app in the app store. If you give that app away for free, by the way, you pay nothing to the app store. Um, have utility in that app. But in that app, you can totally promote your PWA and even have a direct link for someone to download the PWA version as having greater capability than the App Store version. So you could kind of use the App Store version as a Trojan horse for your PWA version. But at the very least, the PWA version would be a good uh, would be a better alternative than uh, sending them to the website to buy and then uh, having them uh, come back to the Kindle app. Cool. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, well, since Jeff listens, I'm sure he's taking furious notes. Yeah, Jeff, I, call Jason if you want details. Yeah, uh, or I'll just send you an email. You can add a question mark and forward it off to someone to ruin their life on Thanksgiving. Uh, we did not record a show directly adjacent to it, but um, of course, Singles Day, uh, November 11th, was uh, happened uh, since the last time we did a new show, and it's kind of a big milestone. It's the 10th anniversary of... Uh, uh, Double uh, eleven day. Did you uh, were were you uh, up late buying some stuff from Hong Kong? I wasn't. You know, I think it's been interesting over the ten year arc where, you know, I feel like for the last first nine years there was all this. Hey, this is going to spill into the U.S. And then it feels like this year there was finally capitulation, and I didn't even get a single email. I think from a U.S. retailer promoting it. Like last year, I got a couple. The year before, I got a lot. And the year before, I got a lot. So it feels like we've kind of given up on this spilling over in the U.S. Uh, and then Prime Day has kind of become our equivalent of Singles Day. Uh, and now everyone is anchoring on that and offering their own kind of deals um, around that time versus 11-11. Uh, yeah, I feel like there were a number of years where... Singles Day grew dramatically, and Jack Ma would threaten, next year, uh, we're coming to the West. Um, and mostly what that meant, and this has definitely been true, every year uh, Alibaba has done a great job of recruiting more Western brands to participate in uh, Singles Day uh, in Asia. And definitely Singles Day has expanded beyond China, so Alibaba now you know, has a presence in other cities uh, or other countries, rather, uh, they have uh, uh, is it Lazada, um, Lazada uh, mm-hmm. in Singapore um, and that they extended it to. So it's it's definitely become a bigger regional event, and uh, there's a ton of Western brands. I have a ton of clients uh, that are excited about it as an opportunity to sell to um, the indigenous populations in those countries. Uh, but I would agree with you. Like there was always some hype that there might be some play for for U.S. consumers, and at most there's like a kind of soft play for expats. Um, but I, I definitely don't. I haven't seen any any traction with with Western shoppers. Um, we probably should highlight like just what happened. Uh, they sold thirty billion, the equivalent of thirty billion dollars in U.S. thirty point eight billion. Um, so huge day. 
compared to like a prime day that might be 4 billion or a, a, a black Friday or, or cyber Monday that could maybe hit 6 billion. Um, 30 billion is an enormous number that's up from like 25.3 billion last year. Um, so, you know, superficially you look at that and go, man, this, this thing's continuing to crank. Uh, it does seem like the rate of growth is starting to slow down. So that represented a 27% growth over last year. Uh, to put things in perspective, last year was a 39% growth over the year before that. And I'm pretty sure every year other than those two has been over 50% growth. So it feels like the growth rate is decelerating a little bit. Um, and like in some ways, even though it was the 10th anniversary, it felt a little bit muted. Uh, number one, Jack Ma, who played a super prominent role in the first nine was was there but had like a much less significant role as he's sort of stepping back from the company a little bit um i think alibaba uh, issued some guidance either right before or right after uh singles day that they sort of downgraded their their revenue guidance for the year and there's a lot of talk about how the chinese economy is slowing down a little bit so um you know it's it's one of those things like uh, objectively, like it did really well, but against expectations, it was a little bit of a, a meh year, if you will. And yeah, absolutely. And um, Alibaba's stock has felt it. So even after you know, kind of a crazy number like thirty-one billion, essentially, if you if you round up a tad, uh, which is crazy to do in a twenty-four hour period, uh, the stock is trading kind of near a fifty-two week low, and, and it's that pressure. Uh, of lowering uh, the forecast, China economy slowing down, uh, the tariffs, you know, everyone is thinking, is kind of assuming the worst with this tariff environment that we're in. So, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a rough time there. Um, you know, I did see another article that, uh, to your point about brands, that they had the, the most, something like 200 Western brands, uh, you know, sold pretty considerable amounts on there. Uh, and it, it's funny, it's kind of like, you know, Everyone goes to China and tries to set up a .com. They give up and they essentially sell on Tmall. So uh, you're looking at even Amazon, who you know runs their own Chinese store. They sell a lot of Kindles and devices uh, over there, which would be like, let's see, it would be like Amazon selling on eBay, which you would never have. Uh, so it, it is interesting to see, even though they're slowing down, they're quite dominant and, and huge portion of e-commerce goes through. Ollie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one, one other thing uh, that seems like is continuing to get traction is every year they make uh, significant progress in trying to turn this into an omni-channel event. So Alibaba owns a bunch of stores. They own like 100 of these fancy digital first grocery stores. They own like 500 convenience stores. Um, but increasingly, they're they're soliciting other retailers that they don't directly own to participate in Double Eleven Day. And so what that usually means is some kind of digital enablement. So maybe they have a digital sign in the front of the store with the deals and uh, you can like activate the deals in the store. You might take the goods with you or have the goods shipped from home. But, you know, really trying to expand from being a pure e-commerce holiday to being an omni-channel holiday. Um, it's Well, e-commerce is bigger in, in China than it is in the U.S. It still is true that it's like... E-commerce is like 15% of the total uh, retail spend in China, and that's more true um, 
in a lot of the uh, less developed cities. Um, so, you know, if uh, you go to the really big tier one cities, there's kind of a, a premise that they're they're getting saturated with e-commerce and that, you know, everybody knows about it and use it as much as they want to. And so that really is driving the, the slowing growth rates in China. Um, there's a huge untapped market in China, which are all these less developed cities uh, that, you know, are more likely to have like rural farmers in them. Um, and so one of the ways you get singles day to reach more of them is you enable that one physical store that's in that city to sell stuff from, from, uh, uh, singles day in that store. And so it seems like, uh, there were something like 200,000 stores that participated in singles day, uh, this year. So, so that to me is, is, uh, kind of interesting. And, you know, frankly, that's going to have to be the future of the growth story in China, right? Like you um, it's already bigger than the U.S. The the addressable market is even way bigger, but they increasingly have to get these not digital shoppers to to get it online before they they're able to uh, get them to become e-commerce shoppers. Yeah. So uh, pivoting. So we've covered Amazon, Alibaba, and now uh, another large global retailer is Walmart. They announced uh, their quarterly earnings and. Um, it's one of those weird ones where they, they came out and, and you know, exceeded expectations and it seemed like they raised and then the stock went down. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what went on there. I, you may have watched that a little bit closer than I did. The headline that caught my attention was they announced that e-commerce grew 43%. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good acceleration f- uh, for these guys. Uh, and, you know, again, as a baseline, we think in the e-commerce world about kind of a 15% growth rate. That's the com score number and government. And there's a lot of people that anchor on this 15% growth number. So that feels like Walmart's e-commerce is growing 3x. Uh, Amazon's quarterly earnings were more in the, the mid-20s range. So feels like they're growing faster than than Amazon. So uh, congratulations to all our friends at Walmart there. Sounds like you know, things are pretty robust on the e-commerce side. Yeah. And kind of put it, uh, frame it a little bit, uh, at the investor day last year, Mark Glory promised 40% annual growth in e-commerce. And then the next quarter out, they slightly missed that at 39%. And um, a 1% miss is apparently enough that they took a pretty big beating in the in the the financial press and uh, in their stock market, uh, in their, in their uh, market cap. Um, so the next couple quarters since then, they basically hit that 40% exactly. Uh, in fact, it almost seems suspicious because they hit that exactly. Um, so this quarter, uh, getting 43% um, with the big holiday quarter up is uh, pretty um, favorable and good news for Walmart. Uh, you know, I do like to remind people, in my mind, a big driver of that huge number. So, I, you know, Walmart's doing a lot of things to grow e-commerce. They've really turned up the heat on the marketplace and they've dramatically expanded their selection. So I think... Not very long ago, they they were selling about a million uh, SKUs online, and today they're more like 40 or 60 million SKUs online. Um, So making huge progress on the assortment. But one of the big drivers of e-commerce at Walmart is uh, selling groceries online. And the way Walmart predominantly sells groceries online is you order them online and they're fulfilled from a store. So either curbside pickup or home delivery. Um, And... You know, you can add a new SKU to your e-commerce site and it's instantly available to everyone in the U.S., uh, but to grow grocery sales, 
you have to make more stores available to fulfill that order. So Walmart has like 4,000 stores in the U.S. Uh, as of this quarter, they had 2,100 stores that did curbside pickup and 800 stores that did uh, home delivery. That's twice as many curbside pickup stores as they had last year. So in a way, they've doubled their capacity uh, to sell groceries online in the last year. And they're promising another thousand next year. And so a lot of this e-commerce growth is becoming from like this, this significant investment that Walmart's making in grocery. Cool. Um, when will that be in every store? Like when will they lap that, that whole thing? Yeah, they haven't said yet, but like if you last year a thousand stores, next year a thousand stores, if we if they keep up that linear progression, they have two more years before they max out. And so then it's another year after that before they really lap the the four thousand store number. So there there, you know, could easily be two or three more years of um benefit from this kind of digital same store sales phenomenon that's playing out at Walmart. Very cool. Anything else going on uh, with our friends in Bentonville? Uh, well, a few things, but um, the, the other one I would just hit on right now is kind of fun. Uh, so Doug McMillan's the CEO of Walmart, uh, impressive guy, started out uh, as an intern in Walmart, worked in the stores, um, and is now, I think according to Fortune magazine, like the 40th most powerful man in the world, um, which I remind myself every time I'm in a meeting with him. Uh, he did an hour-long podcast on the Tim Ferriss show. So, uh, like, you know, he... He speaks a lot, but not really long form like that. And so it's kind of fun to to hear him. And he, he got to share a little more personal stories than than he's normally known for. So uh, if you're interested in Walmart, I'd encourage you to to listen to that podcast on the Tim Ferriss Show. And frequently, the Tim Ferriss Show is kind of a feeder for this show. So we watch that show carefully. If a guest does well there, then we might consider having him on our show. So, um, you know, maybe that bodes well for Doug's chances of getting on the Jason and Scott show one day soon. Yeah, Tim doesn't have the reach we do. So we try to help him out by by mentioning his podcast every once in a while. Exactly. Cool. Um so there was a lot of brick and mortar stuff announced uh, involving phones. And I wanted to, to pick your brain on that. Uh, one I saw was 7-Eleven. They have uh, this kind of scan and go technology. Uh, and what's interesting is kind of pivoting from, from Walmart there. Uh, Walmart had this functionality. And I think they've actually end of life it. So you could kind of self-check out at Walmart. So now you can't do that, but everyone else is trying it. So, so what the heck's going on with that? Yeah. Uh, so what we kind of generically call scan and go is the ability to pull out your phone, scan a product yourself in the store, um, and then pay for it on your phone and therefore not have to go to a cashier to, to pay for it. Um, and that the experience has been around for a while. They weren't the first ones, but actually Apple Store has offered this for quite a while. So you can walk in, grab your accessories, scan them in the Apple app pay with Apple Pay or whatever payment methods you have on file um, and walk out of the store and never have to get help from anyone. Um, and we're, we're seeing that increasingly uh, being used. Macy's is rolling that out. Uh, one of the big complaints in these big uh, department stores is that it's hard to find a cashier to check out. Um, so that that's potentially attacking the number one complaint. Um, at Macy's, as you mentioned, they rolled it, they piloted it in Walmart and Sam's Club. 
And uh, they sort of turned off that pilot in Walmart. They've doubled down on that pilot in Sam's Club. Uh, we haven't officially heard from Walmart why uh, what's going on. Um, but uh, uh, my suspicion is, um, and this is kind of a funny uh, side note about anything you do in retail, I'm willing to bet that a bunch of the, the clerks in Walmart did not love promoting scan and go because it potent, it has the potential to reduce the number of shifts they have for cashiers in Walmart. So you can imagine this labor force that's responsible for educating customers about this feature, like feels like that feature is competing with their livelihood. And so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, Walmart is having to retrench how they roll that out in the Walmart stores, but they definitely have embraced it in the Sam's Club stores. And in fact, Sam's just announced a new uh, concept store called Sam's Club Now, and uh, not not only can you scan and go in Sam's Club Now, it's the only way to check out. So you ab- you literally have to have a phone, and you have to have the Sam's Club app installed before you're even allowed in the store. You scan all your items as you put them in your cart, uh, and you you self check out before you leave the store. Um, that's an interesting pilot. At the same time, since they now know every customer is using the phone and the app in the store, they've added a bunch of features to the app. So they actually have one of my favorite features. They've added an augmented reality feature. So you can aim your phone camera at a shelf in the store. It recognizes the products on the store, and it gives you supplemental information about those products. So you can do the like kind of product comparison where you compare two products and see how the attributes are different and what the pricing is. Um with live products in a store, you can also see ratings and reviews and things that we're used to in e-commerce. Sam's is now enabling in the Sam's Now store by using the the phone that they're forcing the customer to use. Um, and to me, that's a big trend in brick and mortar. So I'm calling this trend the future brick and mortar is mobile uh, because we're increasingly seeing, seeing store concepts where you literally can't shop the store without using your mobile phone. So we, we talk a lot about Amazon Go in this uh, show. You can't get in the Amazon Go store without using the mobile app. Uh, Amazon has bookstores in these four-star stores. In, uh, uh, if you want to know the price of any book in the bookstore, you need to use the app. If you want to pay um, in, in the stores, you're highly encouraged to use the app in those Amazon stores. Um, JD.com, the the second biggest e-commerce site in China, has just rolled out uh, this new digital grocery format called 7Fresh, and they're requiring customers to use their their phone to get in the store and to do scan and go and to have all these features in the store. Um, Excuse me. Uh, And Nike just opened a new flagship store in uh, on fifth avenue in new york it's a cool store for a variety of reasons but most of the cool new features are digitally enabled features that require you to have your phone in the store and the the stores geofence the app so when you launch the nike app near the store the app goes into in-store mode and it gives you all these uh unique capabilities uh to help you shop the store better so um we could deep dive in a future episode on any of the specific store formats. But to me, the big takeaway is, you know, 15 to 20% of all e-commerce sales or sales happen in e-commerce. The rest happen in stores. There are all these things people are getting used to online, like dynamic pricing and ratings and reviews and more detailed product information. And the, 
the very consistent answer that we're seeing to solve all those problems for brick and mortar shoppers is to have that experience on the phone. And it, it makes perfect sense because customer brings a super expensive phone with a big, brilliant screen with them to the store. That's a lot more appealing than putting thousands of super expensive screens in the store that the store would have to pay for. So uh, I think there's a trend we're going to continue to see play out. Yeah. And judging from your voice, you get pretty, um, Get pretty emotional about this stuff, man. I love me some mobile brick and mortar shopping. <laughs> cool. Well, that's the all the news that's fit to chat about in e-commerce and retail. Uh, with that, let's move over to listener questions. Listener questions. Our first question comes from Patrick, and he says, we're a small retailer with about 30 or 40 employees, and we're transitioning from selling other people's stuff to developing and manufacturing our own brand of products. Any suggestions on building a team within a retailer that is responsible for manufacturing your own brand of products? This seems to require a new skill set of employees that we have not traditionally hired for, for example, engineers, product developers, et cetera. Uh, Jason, any advice for Patrick on how to kind of uh, you know, swivel, maybe not pivot is the right word, but to kind of gradually go from selling other people's stuff to developing your own products and selling this? Yeah, well, so A, congratulations on, on uh, leaning in that direction. I, I absolutely think that that is an uh, important part of the future of commerce uh, is more, more companies are going to be selling their own stuff. Uh, it's going to be increasingly harder to make a living selling other people's stuff. Um, and I do think you're right. Like I think uh, you need a lot of different skills to be a product uh, developer, manufacturer, marketer than you do to be uh, a wholesaler or, or a retailer. Um, and so I do think you want to think about adding those new capabilities via via dedicated teams. Um, but big picture, the things I, I really want you to think about and the places I would start thinking about my, uh, investing in, in uh, shifting my labor force the most are uh, the successful products that people launch today are uh, based on an, an intimate understanding of the target customer um, and their needs, wants, and desires. And so like all the companies we've seen that have been really successful launching new products have a direct relationship in some way or another with the customer, and they use that relationship to test, launch new products, and quickly iterate. Um, and that is maybe not best done on platforms like Amazon where you're pretty heavily disintermediated from the customer. And so, you know, one of the things I encourage companies to do is they uh, pivot part of their business from from uh, wholesale to, to being a branded manufacturer is start thinking about how you can develop a, a direct-to-consumer channel or some way to have meaningful intimacy directly with customers so that you can get direct feedback from, from customers and uh, so you can more quickly iterate on product development. And by all means, once you have a great product, use all those other channels to sell the heck out of it. So I, I have no problem with you selling that new product you invented on Amazon. Uh, but I think you need another channel besides Amazon uh, to test and learn uh, and really develop those those product quickly. Uh, the other thing I would remind you is 
uh, when you're selling someone else's stuff, someone else has invested a lot of money in creating awareness and demand for that product. And when you're making your own product, uh, you really need to have a marketing strategy around how you're going to create that awareness and brand. And usually those take different skills. Uh, the dirty secret is when you're selling someone else's stuff, uh, the big marketing skill you need is actually B2B marketing skills to uh, help you build a relationship with those retailers. But when you start making products that you want consumers to buy um, because they recognize that your unique value proposition, you really need true B2C marketing skills. And so you, you need to start thinking about having the right people with the right skills and the, the appropriate budgets to do that. And so... Um, you know, those are all some of the things I would, I would think about as I, uh, uh, made that transition. Scott, any important stuff I missed? Yeah, we're, we're going to have a question in a little bit about anchor spoiler alert. Um, and so, uh, listen, you know, don't stop listening, uh, here at this point, Patrick, uh, Patrick didn't tell us the categories in, um, so, uh, you know, some, sometimes this works or doesn't, but one, one area to kind of get a lot of feedback, like you talked about, is Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, and a lot of the, the biggest campaigns you see on there are already pretty well put together. So, but there's this kind of level down or maybe two levels down if you kind of explore through there. Uh, and companies are using those platforms to do a lot of experimentation around features. So let's say you're going to come up with a widget and you kind of want to find out if people want to feature one, two, three, or some combination of those. You can use those platforms for that. And what you do is you put the basic product out there. Um, and then as you, they, they have different terminology for this, but essentially there's these different levels that, that people can commit to. Um, and essentially they're going to vote with their dollars. So let's say your base product is $30 and then you can add these features and you can use that that feature set on those platforms to kind of let people vote with their wallet for different features that you may or may not want associated with your widget. So um, if you spend a little time poking around there, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Um, but that's kind of a cool way of, of kind of uh, kind of killing three birds with one stone. So you're getting direct feedback from consumers. Uh, you're getting people to pay for you to develop the product, which is always nice uh, kind of prepay. Uh, and then the third one is you're building that direct channel. So, that those platforms can be a really useful way that I don't think a lot of Amazon sellers may think about leveraging those platforms for, for, for doing that kind of product creation stuff. Okay. Our next question is from Sri, uh, and we'll do kind of a lightning round here. So his first question, Jason, uh, is, is the Amazon business in consumables really growing? Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, like clearly, there's categories like the Amazon Basics battery. Famously, has a 31 market share, which is 10 percent bigger market share than Duracell. Uh, tons of brands are seeing huge growth on Amazon Subscribe and Save. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say that like Dash replenishment, while super interesting and potentially the future, isn't huge yet. Um, but absolutely, Amazon's having, uh, I think, very meaningful success in, in consumable-type products. Cool. Are there any consumables that aren't doing well? Like maybe razors, like you know, Dollar Shave Club. And it doesn't seem like Amazon's really directly addressed to that, that market that seems to be where razors are going, just to kind of randomly pick one. Yeah. So you know what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to invite one of our, our data friends, like 1010 Data, on to maybe share that. But uh, I would not be shocked if Amazon sells more razors than Dollar Shave Club or Harry's. Okay. 
Um, so, yeah, so I haven't, I, I, I'm guessing I haven't specifically seen the data on razors. Obviously, there aren't uh, a lot of people ex- buying razors as a single order from Amazon. Um, but uh, let's uh, uh, make sure, make a note and we'll, we'll find out from, from some folks that might know in a future show. Uh, I think one of the other questions uh, that Sri asked Scott was, uh, why are we not embracing Alibaba in the U.S.? Yeah, we, we kind of talked a little bit about this on the singles day coverage. Um, and there's there's kind of an interesting little history lesson here uh, that that not a lot of people may know. So Alibaba acquired a eBay selling platform, full disclosure, this is a kind of a small competitor of Channel Advisors called Octiva in August of 2010. Uh, and then uh, one of the things that Octiva team did, um, and, and I'm good friends with these guys, guys, his name's Jeff, um, they pitched Alibaba on building a marketplace. So essentially aggregating the products from those eBay sellers uh, that now were, were kind of um, also buying a lot of product from Alibaba to sell in the U.S. Uh, and they came up with a little marketplace called 11Main. Um, that never got traction. Um, a lot of people kind of erroneously felt like that was Alibaba's bid bet on the U.S., uh, and that's not true. Um, and it was just kind of an experiment within uh, a, you know, a company that had been acquired. Uh, that ended up getting kind of wound down in 2015 uh, and kind of combined with a bunch of other marketplaces. Uh, and then uh, Alibaba, you know, where they're investing heavily is so, so first of all, they have a very large U.S. presence in New York and they're, they seem to be expanding that. Uh, AliExpress is it's kind of a B2B site where you can buy in bulk, uh, you know, products uh, and then resell them. So a lot of these marketplace sellers source from AliExpress. Uh, I don't think Alibaba discloses exactly how big that is in the U.S., but I, I know it to be quite large. Uh, so that's a big marketplace a lot of people don't know about because it's kind of more B2B. Um, and then uh, the other kind of tentacle of Alibaba that reaches into the U.S. today is they invest in a lot of companies. Um, so let's see. I always get some of this mixed up with Rakuten, who's the other company that kind of comes in and buys a lot of our companies. Uh, so Alibaba is a big investor in ShopRunner, if I recall. Uh, and then they, uh, let's see, did they buy some of the flash sale guys or was that Rakuten? Uh, I know for a fact Rakuten bought a few, but uh, okay, maybe it wouldn't shock me if Alibaba also yeah. has them. So it seems like most of their, their plays in the U.S. have been to really kind of invest in things and keep an eye on it. Um, where, you know, where I think they're, they're doing a lot with the U.S. is more China in. So we mentioned it earlier in the show, getting large brands to sell into China. They have done some experiments um, where trying to get Chinese brands to sell in the U.S. Uh, you know, that hasn't really played out. Uh, most of that product is flowing through Amazon right now. Uh, or through AliExpress or from Alibaba, um, which, uh, you know, back to the first question, how do you start building questions? How do you start, how do you, you're a seller of other people's stuff. How do you start building them? Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is finding a Chinese manufacturer. Uh, Alibaba.com is great for that. So you can go on there and literally find a factory to make you anything. Um, so uh, those are the ways that there is some connective tissue between kind of the, the China Alibaba world and the U.S. So, you know, there's always been speculation too. So when eBay and PayPal split up, 
Um, there's some rules around this. I think we're past the time frame around these rules. Uh, there was a lot of speculation that uh, it was being done so that the eBay asset could be sold off. Um, and the number one company mentioned as buying that would be Alibaba. So that would be kind of an interesting way for Alibaba to, to really get serious about the U.S. market is buy eBay, retool it in kind of what's worked in China, which is splitting the people kind of oriented auctions from uh, you know, the B2B, so Taobao and Tmall, uh, and 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 then taking a run at the US with some combination of putting a lot of Chinese sellers in the mix. So so we'll see. The jury's still out on that. I think it's definitely something Alibaba has you know keeps an eye on and will want to. They're kind of in a weakened position right now, like we mentioned earlier. So so I don't think it's, you know, if I was them, I would do that right now. Uh, uh, but you know, it is something to keep an eye on. And we will report any news there on the Jason Scott show. Nice. Uh, we're we're starting to stretch for time a little bit, but you already teased this question, so I want to make sure we get it in. I think it came from an anonymous listener, but essentially the question was Anchor, which is A N K E R, which is the the uh, accessory mobile and uh, PC accessories manufacturer. Anchor rose to be a power uh, a powerhouse uh, on Amazon business. Can you analyze their changes to highlight the overall marketplace transition to differentiated product development? Yeah. And so, so my knowledge, uh, I've never worked directly with these guys, but I've read a lot of articles about them. Um, and I know people that have worked with them. So, uh, it's all secondhand knowledge. Uh, so Jason, I'd love to, you may have more direct knowledge, but you know, what, uh, the, the urban legend, at least on this is anchor started as just kind of, you know, one of these companies that, that sells a lot of accessories. Um, and then they started to see uh, a hole in the market. Uh, and I think one of their, the, you know, as they started to get there, know their customer, a lot of them are travelers like, like you and I, and the, one of their first things they noticed or heard from their customers was, Hey, you know, I want, uh, uh, you know, more USB ports on my power supply so that I don't have to buy as many of, of essentially the, the bricks. Um, so one of their first products they came out with was a multi USB plug-in kind of power supply. Um, that was wildly popular. And now they've taken that and really run with it. And, you know, they have a whole, whole, uh, I would imagine a whole group that, that innovates around these kinds of things and talks to people and understands, you know, what, what do their next gadgets need to look like? I'm, I'm sitting here and, you know, I've probably got 30 or 40 different anchor things. Uh, you probably have a thousand Jason. Uh, and it's one of my favorite things to buy on prime day because they, they are pretty aggressive selling on prime day. Um, and, you know, to my knowledge, they've pivoted from essentially a, a marketplace seller all the way to a top manufacturer. I've read articles that kind of put their sales well north of, of several hundred millions of dollars, which wouldn't surprise me. I bet they're probably a three to five hundred million dollar company at this point. So, um, you know, back to that first question, this is a really good example of how they do it. I, I also know they spend a lot of time um, looking at Amazon search results. There's various services that give you. Amazon searches and the results. Um, so for example, we, we have a customer at channel advisor, um, that spoke at a conference. So I, I don't feel bad saying this. They, uh, you know, there's this, this classic Han Solo and carbonite image, the, they're in the star Wars world, shockingly. So I know a lot about them and, um, they kept seeing people look for that in different ways. And they came out with a beach towel that had it on it. So it looks really funny. The beach towel is just like, you know, 
the exact Han Solo and Carbonite. So uh, it looks kind of funny when it's just sitting there on the beach. Uh, and they discovered that through looking at search terms. So people were actually looking in towels for Han Solo and Carbonite, uh, not finding it. And they saw the null search results there and decided to go build that product. Uh, and I've heard the anchor guys talk about, they spent a lot of time looking at the Amazon marketplace and these inequities between supply and demand. And then they figure out how to be the supply that meets that demand. Yeah, it's an awesome tactic. If you have your own e-commerce site, it's one of the most valuable uh, places to mine are those uh, zero results founds on your own site. Uh, but for sure, using tools to get visibility in a, like what's happening on Amazon search is super valuable. The other area that they they tend to farm a lot for good insight is the reviews on the public platforms like Amazon. So you, you can actually... Uh, learn a lot about the attributes people are looking for in products by reading the reviews of people that actually bought the, the previous versions of products, um, which is another good tactic. Uh, and you did correctly surmise, I feel like I am a little bit of an anchor hoarder. Um, I have some weird latent fear that someone's going to come to my house with a weird device that they need charged, and I'm going to be a bad host and not have the right the right stuff. So I, I feel like I, I buy way too much of that stuff. And Every new gadget that comes out opens the door to replace it all, right? So now our our, our latest iPhones uh, can be charged by eighteen watt chargers, and they charge a little faster. So I had to replace all the 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 older USB chargers with USB C chargers. And one of the things you'll find uh, from a company like Anchor is they've now moved into differentiated products. Is they they actually have competitive advantages over the ocean of of generic products that are that are on the market, so you you can find eighteen watt USB C chargers from Anchor uh, that are much smaller um, that have like nice usability features like folding plugs and all these things uh, than almost any of the other sellers on Amazon. So it, it it always is a little tip of my hat. It's always surprising to me when you can offer a differentiated product on Amazon where they now have like six hundred million million SKUs. Um, and uh, so that's going to be a great way to leave it. Uh, hopefully you're listening to this show in your car on the way to uh, your, your relatives for, for Thanksgiving. And uh, when you jump on your phone to look for some of those Black Friday deals, make sure you check out some cool new USB chargers uh, from our friends at Anchor. Um, and so uh, if uh, I'm wrong or you have another favorite product or there's anything else you want to discuss from today's show, we'd encourage you to jump on a Facebook and leave us a question. Uh, we do try to get to all of them when we can. Uh, and as always, if you enjoyed the show, we sure would appreciate it if you would jump on to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving. And we're thankful here at the Jason and Scott Show for you listening to these crazy ramblings uh, through over 150 episodes. Uh, we have no idea why you do it, but we really appreciate it. Absolutely. And so until next time, happy turking and happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. <laughs>